Last time we did this, we weren't working together either. We were just getting to know each other. You had come down to New York. I'd consider it friends. Yeah, we were friends. This was pre-pandemic. I know, travel, I was flying around. We had the video crew at the time. We did one in Miami, in Arizona, in LA, in New York. Yep. I think you had said you were meeting someone at scale. I saw Jake Dunlap, or no, uh, Jake wasn't in New York City, so I saw uh, this guy Franklin. We had a we did an interview there. Yeah, and then came over to the WeWork. I know. I was VP of customer success at Platters, and then the pandemic hit about four weeks later, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, no one was ordering food to the office anymore. So <laughs> that was the beginning of the end of my time <laughs> at Platters. But anyway, um, it's fun. I'm glad we're going to get into it today. We're going to talk about how we're building Refine Labs together. But every great company starts with a great origin story. And so I know you've talked about this before, but let's kick off this with a recap of when was the idea for Refine Labs born? How did you how did you start the company from the very beginning? So I've been a B2B marketer for all of my entire career and have picked up skills in a lot of different areas since starting in sales enablement, field marketing and product marketing and brand and organic and demand and paid and in pure strategy, targeting, positioning, things like that. And through the time when I was going through multiple different companies, I stopped at a venture funded company called Vapotherm where I assessed the business and looked at what is the biggest opportunity for me to make an impact on this company. They hired me to do field marketing and product marketing. I looked around and I saw that our sales team wasn't able to go out and acquire net new customers and the lack of new customer acquisition was being hidden by expansion revenues. The company continued to grow through expansion, but wasn't acquiring new customers. So eventually that train was going to come to the station. And so I, um, got focused on how do we acquire more customers for less money to continue to grow the company. And as I started to dig into it, the number one thing that mattered was, do we understand customers effectively and can we communicate with them effectively? And so I started using digital channels like Facebook and Instagram, which in that time in 2017 was foreign. Executives thought it was crazy to think about doing some of those things. And as I started to see it work when we would run Facebook ads and have 50 buyers comment on those ads, asking questions, presenting objections, ask, literally asking in a comment, hey, could a sales rep come here and show our team this? That I started to see that something was there. And then if you started looking at it over a six or a 12 month period of time, the business data was showing that this was a major change. Mm-hmm relative to how the company was doing it right now. You just compare the two side by side, field sales, outbound, new customer acquisition, sales cycle length, pipeline velocity, total revenue, total CAC. And then this model, comparing all those different metrics, it was just significantly better. And that was the moment that I was like, this is, we got something special here. What happened after Vapotherm though? So what happened after Vapotherm, Vapotherm eventually IPO, they still continue to be very successful in the respiratory space. And from there, I joined a series A company for a short period of time, which is where I started to realize that what I had built there was unique Mm -hmm. and that a lot of people were doing all the things that I tried that I knew didn't work. And then there was the opportunity. And so shortly after that company raised a series A, I, um, parted ways with them and 
a lot of the experience during that short period of time helped me now communicate to marketers the marketing death wish, joining a series A company that has 12 salespeople with no marketers and the situation that that creates is just a, not a good environment. And so I help marketers avoid that because I went through that myself. Talk a little bit more about that though. How like you parted ways, that was probably a difficult moment Te for you. Uh, technically I resigned, but I got fired. <laughs> um, and it's an interesting kind of thing to wind back on, but the reason everything happens for a reason and the reason that it happened is because I'm not an employee, I'm an entrepreneur. And so there was always friction because I see strategy differently. If people think about how we've built Refine Labs, which we're gonna get into so much more detail about, that no CEO would have me run the strategy at their company. It's so counterintuitive, it's so unique, it's so different that me trying to get this done inside of companies just wasn't working. I just see things way differently than other people did. So there was friction. And then, yeah, I was asked to leave and eventually started this company. So after you left, when you were initially going to think about starting Refine Labs, what was the original expectation you had about what the company would be? Because you essentially started just doing some consulting. And so did you think you'd just be a one-man consultant? Like when you first got started, what did you think it would actually be? Yeah, there wasn't really a plan. There was no grand plan <laughs> at the beginning. So my first goal and anyone's first goal if they're, you know, lost their job and not going to find another one is to replace your income. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, just build a spreadsheet. How many customers do I need? What do I need to pay for me to make $20,000 a month? And so we, I like went through that, picked up a couple of customers through network, started posting on LinkedIn. And then you started to see LinkedIn have a crazy effect. And that was on August 9th, 2019. Somebody that had a huge following must have commented on my post because it was the first time that I got like 100,000 views on a post. Mm -hmm. And that was when I saw that this opportunity was real. And I have been posting on LinkedIn very consistently for the past like 20 months since that happened. Let's talk a little bit more about this because this I think is a key driver of the success of the entire company is LinkedIn, your videos, the subsequent podcast events. Let's get into this. What at the beginning, what was the actual strategy? Because I feel like the strategy kind of evolved and developed over time. You didn't have this grand plan from the beginning that yeah. all of this would play out exactly in this way. So what was the evolution and how did that, how did you experience that evolution? Yeah. So the thing that I knew for sure was that we were not going to have success to try and sell our model, which is counterintuitive, that people need to be highly educated, that is very differentiated, to have success selling that cold outbound. People need to know a lot about the things that we're doing and the things that we believe over time to even have consideration to use us. And so sending cold emails to people, hey, can you have a meeting? I just knew that that wasn't going to be the path for us selling commodity shit, you can spam people and get pick up a couple of customers, especially when you have no revenue. And so it can work for some people, but I knew it wasn't going to work for us. Did you try it at all? Or you just didn't even, you didn't even attempt? We, we, um, Miles Campbell had, we, we did send like a, uh, maybe 10 cold emails, but when we didn't have a huge strategy around it, um, and it was just like clear, it wasn't going to work. And I had seen that happen before yep. in my career. So we pivoted away from that very quickly and then moved into creating content for LinkedIn. The space that we created though, by having three or four customers 
and getting to 20K a month was that we weren't in short-term mode ever. And throughout the entire time of building the company, we've not needed to do the wrong things, to get the wrong customers, to hit some revenue value to keep growing, um, which I think has created a lot of discipline in our customer acquisition strategy, in our customer success strategy, in our sales strategy that I think a lot of other people don't have. And so through being able to have the patience to work through that over time and see the signals that I saw at Vapotherm doing this, knowing that over a two year period of time, the impact was enormous over a two day period of time, it you doesn't see it that way. Mm-hmm. And just started to really see it develop. So at what point, the podcast I don't think was launched until like March or April, April. 2020. Mm-hmm. And so, you were starting to see traction on LinkedIn, you were disciplined, you were committed. Arguably the podcast has become an even bigger driver for the success and the growth of the company. And so what happened between like the LinkedIn journey and then getting the podcast off the ground? How did that play out? Yeah, so (laughs) we'd had initial traction on LinkedIn through the summer of 2019. And then one thing that I started to notice is that I would write text posts And then the next day I log into LinkedIn and people had copied and pasted my stuff, specifically someone in the UK would copy and paste my post from yesterday and then post it as their post the next day. And so at that point, and there was actually quite a lot of plagiarism happening, people would copy blogs from somebody else's blog from Medium and then post it inside of that or copy people's posts from Twitter and then pretend that it was their own inside of LinkedIn. There was just generally a lot of plagiarism going on on the platform at that time. And so I decided to make a pivot and say, you're not gonna be able to copy video. And so we were one of the earliest adopters and probably the most aggressive user of video on LinkedIn over the past two years, for sure. I haven't seen anyone come close to the volume, quality, production, consistency that's happening in video on LinkedIn over the time. And the initial rationale for doing it was, you're not, you might be able to copy the, the words that I do, but you're not gonna be able to copy the speed, the consistency, the connection that I make with people, the way that it's explained live, that demonstrates real expertise. Cause when people plagiarize, go put them in front of a live audience and ask them the same question and see what happens. And so mm-hmm. that's why we initially moved into video. We would create the video by hosting live consulting sessions where people would ask me questions on a one-on-one and we would film my side and then we would take that and we would post it or we would do, um, I was guest on podcasts that we would film as well. And where do we go? Where do we go from there? I remember seeing some of your early videos. You'd be like on a couch, like looking off to the side with your like AirPods. In yeah, and yeah, yeah. And we would <laughs> Those just were pick, calls. We, so there was someone would, on the other end. Yeah, yeah. And we, we would were, just pick a random place here. and we would talk. But and and for privacy of the other person, it was just my answers, which I thought was great. The company was growing. I had hired my first employee, so we had one employee and one contractor, mm-hmm. and. I was getting ready to try and make live events. So instead of having people call and then record that to actually set up events where there'd be bring someone influential in and I would interview them and then we would film, we would invite people to attend. We would do Q and A, we would film it. And then the film and the content would then get amplified on the internet, which was the real point of doing it. Mm -hmm. So you have an influencer strategy, you have a live event strategy, you have a content and digital strategy all wrapped into one. And the reason that I wanted to do those things was to help companies see that there's a better way, there's a better way to do things than build trade show booths that you could do 50 of these events for less than the cost per year 
for less of the cost than you spend on trade show booths right now and get way better impact, have way better relationships, have way better events that customers like, create way more content for the internet. You do that 50 times a year, you got all the content that you need. And so it was more of a, and I've always, I've seen more and more success as I go and, and say, I'm gonna do this, what I tell people to do, I'm gonna go and do it for myself. Mm-hmm. And so the first one was planned to do with Josh Braun in Miami in January of 2020. Yeah. And we had all the paperwork and the things to rent the space and fly the people down and get the camera crew for Hollywood, all the things. And it was like $30,000 total. And I sat on the contracts and decision for six weeks because I was scared. At that point, the company probably only had $50,000 in the bank, maybe a hundred. And so it's like 30%, maybe 50% of our entire cash would be outlaid to go and do this event, which was a risky, could be perceived as a risky move. Not even perceived. You were confident, but you weren't sure it was going to work. No, not definitely not (laughs) sure. Hadn't done it before. Wasn't sure if we were going to be able to get people there. What if Josh Braun shows up and there's nobody here? Um, (laughs) And eventually, like the decision, it was sometime in in mid-December, it was like, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it. Um, and so I, we like went and did it, tried it. It turned out amazing. People loved it. The content went off. We eventually did another one the next month with Justin Welsh in LA, which created a really interesting flywheel. Both those events took the brand and the company to the next level with the content that was published with those people. And, um, how did did you, so Josh Braun, Justin Welsh, they're famous on LinkedIn, LinkedIn influencers, did you just reach out and ask them like how at the time you were continuing to build, you know, your brand, your following, arguably they were maybe nobody. a little bit more yeah. LinkedIn famous than you were. For sh- Yeah. Without a doubt, more famous than me. So a lot of people sometimes are intimidated to like even just go and ask certain people. Yeah. So like you just, was your strategy just to reach out and ask? Did you develop a relationship over, over because time? Because I've been commenting on their posts for a re- really long time. I felt like they knew me. And then the second part is. I'm not really asking them to do anything. I'm offering them a, a avenue to demonstrate their skills and they're already creators on the platform. It's like, hey, all you gotta do is show up. We'll bring an audience. We'll bring a $10,000 video crew. We'll give you all the content. We'll post-produce all the videos so that you can post them. I know that you like posting on LinkedIn, so here it goes. We're gonna interview you. And so it's not. Re- it wasn't really a big ask. It was kind mm-hmm. of like an offer. Mm-hmm. And so, I thought we had a pretty good offer there. Both of them wanted to do it. It helped me build relationships with both of those people that I thought was helpful too. And so Definitely. that's how it worked. So at this point you had maybe two or three employees, contractors at the company. This was pre-pandemic and now remote work is kind of a normal thing almost after everything that we've been through in the last couple of years. You talk a lot about how you make decisions that are very different than other people. and so. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think even at the beginning when you were hiring people, you didn't ever really have an intent to get an office, build an HQ. Did you actively think about remote work before remote work was a thing? The company was always planned to be remote work for a couple of core reasons. One is that we would never be able to access the talent necessary to accomplish our mission. If it was restricted to people that can come to an office in Boston or another city, it would never happen. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of companies restrict the availability of talent because of that. 
The second piece of it is that for at least five years before that, I had been working in a hybrid remote. I would have been fully remote if the company allowed me and recognized how much more productive, how much more things I got done, how much more creative that I was and how much more effective I was was in my job in a remote setting. Mm -hmm. And I almost had a bit of resentment that the companies that I worked for didn't weren't progressive enough, didn't see the benefits of doing that to allow me to do remote on my own because I thought in such an uh, old school type of way, it was clear that we were going to be remote from the beginning. Nice. I think that is very rare, especially at the time. I, I remember actually people think that you need to be physically together to control the culture and it's not true. And so they, you need to be physically together to oversee people and what they're doing and what they're thinking. And you also think that because people are together, you get a better culture. But culture gets created by how leaders act. Culture gets created based on the behaviors that you tolerate and the behaviors that you accept and the behaviors that you don't tolerate. Culture is created by the actions that you take every day as leaders. And so we've been able to, and we'll probably get into this in a lot more detail, but we've been able to create an incredible culture remotely, I think way better than many companies that do it in person. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, we'll come back to this um, a little bit later when we talk about how we're building the company. I want to kind of keep along the timeline because I feel like we're getting very close to a couple of key inflection points that really changed Mm -hmm. the trajectory of the business. And so. So at this point, still at this point, like the things are working, but I have no idea that this company can be a huge company. So you're so the, uh, the strategy up to this point was create a uh, couple million dollar business and then invest in real estate. That was the plan. Oh, I don't even think I knew that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was, that was the plan. Um, and so we had done those couple of events. We at that point had hired our third and fourth employees. Yep. And so we probably wanted like April, to, we May, had, uh, March, pre pandemic, we were okay. planning to do two more events, the live ones like we did with Josh Braun and Justin Welsh, one in San Francisco and one in Austin. Okay as it started to progress, like it became clear that we were going to have to cancel those events. Yeah. And so we canceled the events that happened, the country shut down. And then like a week later, Catano Denardi and I, who had, I had known when we were, I was in Miami with Josh Braun. I missed that part that Catano and I filmed a video called state of demand gen in early 2020. Yep. And so him and I got together, actually he suggested the idea of, Hey, do you want to do a live event about demand gen and just have people show up and help them because like we're everyone's locked down and like doing something like this would be cool and I think people would like it. So we agreed to do it on a Thursday and then the next Tuesday we did a Zoom, we published it, about 25 people showed up. Some of the people that were on the first Zoom still came to episode 90 this week, which is cool. (laughs) And then we turn and then that was the beginning of the podcast. We would take the recording of Demand Gen Live and then put it on to officially Apple and Spotify as a state of Demand Gen podcast. And we continued, Gatano and I continued to do that event for probably close to a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. And that's how the the live event strategy created the podcast. Yeah, and Demand Gen Live, I think that, that was the first weekly installment where you were, your first like, we talked about this, putting re- a pillar in the ground yep. of recurring content. Mm-hmm. So you and I joined forces a couple of months after that. It was like July, 2020. I actually get asked a lot from people, how did you and Chris meet? How did you guys team up? And so why don't you tell the story? 
<laughs> so let's back up a couple of steps. So during the course, when the pandemic happened, we started the podcast because of the, uh, and I want to talk through a little bit of the strategy, because by that time we had been more focused on B2B software companies than the year before. So it, over the Q4 of 2019 to Q2 of 2020, we had really solidified that we're going after high growth B2B SaaS companies. During that little period of time, we started to see our uh, no revenue in April, in April. I think a lot of companies felt that. But after that, companies started to wake up and be like, look, we're going to be in this situation for a while. We can't just sit here and hold money anymore. We need to act. And so um, the reaction was we need to invest more in digital. And a lot of companies at that time hadn't taken the steps over the past five years to actually figure out how to do this. And then they needed to figure it out really fast to keep their business going because events got shut down. Outbound wasn't working as well. Buyer, just a completely different place. Mm -hmm. And so we had some initial traction to the place where we had gotten to seven or eight employees and, and more customers that time, maybe close to a million in revenue. And at that point, when you have seven or eight people, it starts to put pressure on the operations of the company. And so in that point, like just for me and my skills, I'm a strategist. I am like product marketing, strategy, content, business development, employer brand. Like those are the things that I feel like I'm strong at. Operations and really like finishing and moving things to completion aren't exactly my, my skill set and strength. <laughs> And so you could start to sense, and I hadn't recognized it, but I was looking for like a consultant or somebody, you know what I mean? Or trying to promote someone inside of my own company to do it real, to do operations. And so the signals had started to come in my brain, but I didn't know. And then didn't really know what it was or what I was looking, what I, what we needed at that time. And then I was walking my, walking my dog one Friday night, it just came into my head. I was like, I got to hire Megan Bowen. <laughs> It's really what happened. I was just walking my dog right over there and I messaged you on a Friday uh, or maybe it was a Thursday at that point and said, uh, hey, do you want to chat? And you came back and you're like, yeah, you want to extend it from 15 minutes to an hour? And then we did. Yeah. <laughs> and at the time, so I was, I mentioned this at the beginning, I was at a company called Platters. It was negatively impacted by the pandemic. I had to lay off a bunch of people. And prior to that, I was at and post a WeWork acquisition, I had to go through another round of layoffs. And so I actually got your message and I was basically about to quit my job and think about potentially doing my own thing, like starting consulting. So when you messaged me, I wasn't even sure what you wanted to talk yeah. about. But in my mind, I was like, huh, I might have to go out on my own or start my own consulting thing. It seems like that's what Chris is doing. So I want to pick his brain so mm -hmm. I can learn what he did to, to start my own thing. So going into that conversation, that was my mindset. <laughs> yeah. And right before I considered hiring you was the time where I recognized that this could be a really big business. What so were some the, of those other signals? The, just the, the traction on LinkedIn. We were like the success of our customers and the retention of our customers. The companies that we were working with were going from like seed startup to series C high profile companies, those companies are getting success. The companies go, went from like 800K to 2 million over a six month period of time. There was just a lot of clear signals that it's like, wow, like we can acquire customers, customers are successful, we can retain them, there's good margins. Like, and that was the point where it was like, we're gonna scale this out. That's awesome. So, 
couple of things I think we'll come back to the timeline and talk more about, but a lot of people actually ask you this too. Why Refine Labs? How did you come up with the name? <laughs> this is a good story. <laughs> so this is honest, people. So one of my good friends, Matthew Valak, had the domain. And back at that time, I didn't know what to call it. And we didn't have a bunch of domains. So we just used one that my friend already had. But it matches what we're going for, which is why it attracted me to it. Because like, I always thought about this place as like a research lab where we're doing so many like innovative things and bringing minds together and creating new data and strategies and information that people don't have right now because they don't look. And so we were going to be the people that were going to go and look for those new things for people to do. Yeah, I love that. We're going to get back to the, some of the tactics of how we're building the company. But before we get into that, I want to spend a little time talking about why we're different. Because I think that was one of the things that I think connected both of us when we were talking about whether we were going to join forces. It was everyone is just using the same playbook to not only do marketing, but also to just run build company. companies. And at the time, I was so frustrated with, you know, VC backed companies hiring too quickly, making poor choices to scale unsustainably and ultimately their team suffering the consequences of mm -hmm. those poor decisions. And I think that there's a few things about how we're different, not only our actual marketing strategy and the service we provide to our customers, but how we think about building Refine Labs as a company. And so if you could synthesize from your perspective why we're different, what are some of the top things that come to mind? I just want to talk through my experience on this because I worked at five or six B2B companies before I started my company, several of which that were venture funded. And I just spent a lot of time studying how executives made decisions and why. Mm -hmm. And was lucky in my career to spend a lot of time in board meetings when people would make big strategy decisions and try and understand what data are they looking at? Why is that person objecting? Why is this person pushing it through? and just started to study. And some of the things that I, and then over time collected, these are the things that I like. These are a lot of the things that I don't like. These are the things that I don't want to put my employees in, a, in that situation, things like that. And the two venture funding companies, a couple of things that I noticed is that the company raised a lot of money and then created targets that were unrealistic so that the whole team throughout the entire year felt like they were playing behind from behind, even when the company was growing at like 60 or 70% in a year. Mm -hmm. And so everything is actually working, but people aren't getting their bonuses. Salespeople aren't hitting plan. The people are arguing with one another and it just created a really bad culture in my view. And the second piece was that the company had these these values that they would put on the wall and they would show in their monthly decks and things like that. But then when it came down to the last week of the quarter and the company was 40% to the revenue plan, nobody gave a fuck about the values. Yep. And those were some things that I learned. I think that the excess cash that companies raises allows them to build unsustainable businesses. And I came from a practical place where the first five years of my career, I worked at companies that made 80% gross margin and drove net profit growth every year. And it was just a different game. And I think that people need to think about, or I've been thinking about when we built our company about building it in a way that is sustainable, has great business fundamentals and dynamics, which allows you to put employees first and customers second and shareholders third. Yep. That was one of the key reasons I 
decided to team up with you? I know I was like, I'm not a marketer. You want me to help you build a marketing agency? (laughs) But I think the values alignment there was key. We had very different experiences, but I think came to a lot of the same conclusions, which was Mm -hmm. really interesting. We've talked a lot about building the company. How would you articulate our unique and differentiated offering to the market? I think that that has evolved over time, but I think that the way where, where we are right now and I think where we're headed is really exciting. How would you explain that? So at a top level, the difference is in the strategy. Yep. The difference is in how we think. The difference is in the things that we know that others don't because they don't look. And so our marketing strategy is the differentiator and people can copy the posts or take our messaging from our website and put it on their website, but you can't copy it. You can't steal what's in my brain. And so the strategy really is the unique differentiator, which allows all the tactics underneath it. The second piece, and I think it's really interesting, is that most companies that are like ours build on the back of tech vendors. Think about all the HubSpot marketing agencies. Think about all the Marketo marketing agencies. Think about all the companies that do Sixth Sense implementations or outreach implementations and all that stuff. And when you build a company around that, you don't have your own strategy. You just follow the tech vendor strategy and then implement it over there. And that's why we don't have a lot of tech vendor relationships is because we have a strategy that's focused on customers, not focused on how to use technology. So the separation of that, I think, is a really interesting component as well. There's very few companies that are not attached to technology vendors. The second piece of why they attach to technology vendors is because they can't market themselves to acquire customers. So they need to get referrals from tech vendors to keep growing. Mm -hmm. And we're in a different place where, funny enough, who would have thought a marketing company is good at marketing to get their own customers. And so we've gotten in a place where we don't need technology vendors to bring us customers and we don't want to implement their strategy on customers. And so that's a key differentiator. It's technology agnostic and focused on what customers need and it can evolve at a rate that's super fast because it's not hindered or constrained by the technology. The next piece is the talent and the the way that we think about people here because I remember as a B2B marketer and I would hire an agency and what you're hiring is somebody that understands how to run ads. Not somebody that has worked in your company before, understands your positioning, understands what the CRM looks like better than you, understands how to slice that data better than anyone in your company, can provide real strategic value and guide you like a Boston consulting group, like what you'd expect from a Boston consulting group or a McKinsey. Never saw anything like that. And so the strategy that we've had is to hire top tier demand marketers that have been successful building strategies inside of B2B companies already. So they understand what it's like. They understand the tech, they understand the politics and the other things like that. And then we go out and help companies implement that strategy like a Boston consulting group or someone would combined with an agency layer of execution to do all the things that these companies aren't equipped and built to do. And so combining those two pieces, I think, is highly valuable and highly differentiated. Basically, what I built was I had been in companies for enough time where I was like, if I was a CMO, what partner would I want? Mm -hmm. And then I just built that. 
So I want to spend a little time getting tactical about different areas of the business. We kind of landed on on people there. We have recruited some of the best talent out there and probably over the course of the last year and a half went from about eight people to 60, which is fast and a lot. And every single- With no funding, by the way. I know, we're going to get to that. Every single person on our team is incredible. The caliber of talent that we have here is the thing that I'm most proud of. But talent acquisition, employer branding, recruiting, this is hard, especially right now. This is a hot topic right now. And so I want to talk a little bit about how you've thought about finding the best talent, how you've thought explicitly about the employer branding, um, or how a lot of the stuff that you've just been doing kind of fuels not only customer acquisition, but talent acquisition. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about our journey with finding all of our great people and getting them, getting them on the bus with us. Yeah. I think the number one is the mission and the strategy. I think that there's plenty of demand markers out there and many that join us that have been stuck on the MQL hamster wheel at their company for the past three years and know it doesn't work, but can't change it because the executives in those companies haven't looked at what's actually happening in the world or at the data. Mm-hmm. Who wants to go in there and do shit that they know doesn't work? So the people that join us, and I think why people are attracted here is because they see what's fundamentally broken and recognize that what we do solves it. So I think that's one. I think the second one is that we walk the walk, meaning that I don't talk about posting on LinkedIn every day and then not do it. I don't talk about not like doing certain activities and then not do it. We actually demonstrate the behaviors that people should do, which I think is, I don't see a lot of people doing that actually, surprisingly. So that's a big one. I think a lot of people, because of the way that we've gone to market for our own company, so podcast, LinkedIn, things like that, that people that want to learn how to market that way or have already marketed that way or know that that way to market is more effective are attracted to coming here. I remember being an employee and HR and your boss would look down on you for posting on LinkedIn because I thought you were looking for another job in 2017 where like they would encourage, they would suppress you to encourage you not to share your thoughts and not to be on the internet and not to do those things. I just thought was like so antiquated and outdated. And I think that people see when they join here who they could become. Definitely. And so the thing that I realized in my career was that in the long term, the things that matter are skills, experience, and relationships. Not how much money you made when you were 28 years old. And I think that a lot of people are starting to pick that up is that if you look at your career over a more long-term window, not how much you're gonna take home this year, that it matters a lot more to be in a place where you're constantly learning and growing with people that you like, that are challenging you, that will become future business partners or CMOs or things like that. And I think that people see that where we're headed is creating the next future of B2B marketers and CMOs. And they're all coming up through here. I agree. I wanna talk a little bit about some of the challenges and the struggles we've had. Arguably, in order for us to acquire new customers, we have to have people on our team to work with those customers. And so I would say that probably since I started working with you, recruiting has probably been the number one 
challenge that we've had to consistently work at at trying to mm-hmm. get ahead of where I would say we're often behind and not able to find the right people to join us quickly yeah. enough and we're, we're we have a high bar we definitely are picky I know that we spent a lot of time talking about how we were going to think about our employer brand mm-hmm. how we were going to deploy other strategies to try to get ahead of this. So talk through some of the challenges that we've had around recruiting and some of the things that we did over time to address it. Yeah, I want to talk through one in particular because some people that are thinking about working here mentioned that they don't see themselves working at an agency because of how bad the working environment has been either for them in the past or in another way. And the first thing I say is like, we're not really an agency. I would put us more way closer to a consulting firm than an agency in that type of bucket. But the key difference in why we're not like that and we don't create an environment because we would never be successful in that environment is that we don't bill based on hours. And so the marketing agency that burns you out wants you to work 60 hours a week so that they can bill the customer 60 hours a week while they pay you salary for 40 hours a week. So they're going to burn you as much as they can in order to do that. We don't bill by the hour. We are focused on results. And for our customers, I tell them directly, it doesn't matter whether we work on your project for 200 hours this month or five. If you get the results that you want, that's why you're paying us. And so when you focus on results, not how many hours, you create a completely different environment. And I think that's like something for business generally, right? Like it's basically caring more about the results, vanity metrics or activities. So, um, That was one big one. I think that the negative stigma of agencies has been a little bit of a challenge. The second one is is not being a high-profile, venture-funded type of company, which in some cities people have egos of Mm -hmm. needing to work at some company that's raised a hundred million dollars because they think that it would it's cool or they think that that's the the what you need to do or something like that. And so when we compete with talent with some of those companies, it's been a little bit of a challenge, but I think what people are starting to realize is that the culture and the environment is drastically different when you have those two types of companies stacked together. Those are a couple that came to my head. What else you got? Well, I know when it was early days, we probably only had about 10, 11, 12 people at the company. You and I were pretty much doing recruiting, right? We were reaching out to people, posting our jobs on LinkedIn. And I think one of the misconceptions I think we held were we have to do our own recruiting. Like we're not gonna outsource this externally. This doesn't make sense. Like we can figure this out. But we were like constantly behind the eight ball on finding finding the right talent. And so I think one day, actually, I think because you saw James Hornick on LinkedIn posting content from HireWell, we decided, okay, maybe maybe we should try this out. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should see if this makes sense. Um, and that was around the same time we also reached out to Nate at Before You Apply. And so basically, that I think that was January of this year, 2021. Yeah. Maybe, where we, maybe even later than that, but maybe yeah. Maybe even later, where we got an external partner to help. And then that's when mm-hmm. we created our Before You Apply page. And then this is when I, I feel like I finally became a marketer mm-hmm. and really leaned into our employer brand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Talk and- a little bit about that, those decisions, because I think that was an inflection point in, in getting the right talent for us. Yeah. I mean, leveraging several different recruiting firms to bring in top talent has been a major driver in the growth of the company this year in order to keep up with the immense amount of demand that's been created. So that was a big choice for us. Yeah, it worked out though. And I think that 
one of the things that we also did um, early days was initially we wanted to empower our team to feel confident to post on LinkedIn. We, you know, we'd give them little training sessions, a playbook. We'd talk them through the dynamics of the platform. You and I would model that behavior. People tell me all the time, they're like, I open up my LinkedIn feed and I just see every person that works at Refine Labs popping up in the feed. And so talk a little bit about how you think inspiring and motivating the team to focus on their own personal brands on LinkedIn, not only has, I feel like that's created a win-win-win situation. It's good for them. It's good for us. It's good for our customers. It's the whole ecosystem. It's not like we hire a bunch of people and then we're like, hey, now, now like go post on LinkedIn. (laughs) You need to look at this way more broadly. When we post on LinkedIn and we create podcasts, we attract people that also spend time there that want to do those things and then they want to work here. And then when they get here, they already want to do that. And so then that other companies don't do that. So you see companies needing to use whatever that stuff is, employee engagement platforms where you share out blogs or different things like that, or companies just don't help their own employees do it because they want to suppress them because they think if they're successful, then they'll get another job. Like they'll go get another job or they'll start their own thing. And you're not going to stop someone that's going to be successful from being successful. I totally agree. And so for me, if somebody at our company comes here, become gets way more popular on LinkedIn, goes out, starts their own company and has a lot of success. Awesome. From somebody that came that was a manager level demand marketer and over a year starts their own company is way more successful and where the bridge for that happening. That's great. That's awesome. And so I think that people just don't see how an employee coming through being successful and leaving can actually be a good thing, but it can be. And it's our job as leaders and, and business owners to continue to give people reasons why to stay, not trying to force them to stay. Yeah. I want to touch on one more people topic, and then I want to switch gears to talk about our ICP evolution, our service offering evolution, you mentioned that agencies can get a bad rap in the market, that they're known for overworking people. It's really important to me too, that this conversation is not just a highlight reel. And so we had an inflection point this year where, and we'll talk a little bit more specifically in a minute about the evolution of our customer base and how quickly that evolved and changed. But we had a point several months ago where we were starting to get a lot of feedback from our team that They were starting to feel overworked. They had too much on their plate. They were trying to figure out how to get everything done and meet client deliverables on time. Talk a little bit about kind of how we got into that situation and then what we did. We listened to our team and we immediately acted on it to start to implement changes to course correct that because we knew that that wasn't sustainable and we wanted to, as you said, walk our walk and demonstrate our commitment to our team that we were not going to keep them in a bad situation. And so talk through that, because I think that was a really important milestone for us this year. This year was really the year of rapid scale. The growth was good up to this point, but going from 12 employees to 70 in 12 months with no funding, like you got to be profitable and you got to get more customers in order to go out and hire those people and keep going is a lot and really challenging. You got to have really strong business dynamics. That's almost 500% growth or something. And so during that phase of growth, you don't have a ton of time to see how things are evolving and changing. 
And what was happening was that our customers continued to get more and more significant, but we hadn't planned for the additional work necessary. And so the capacity modeling had been calculated based on we have four customers, all those customers are homogenous and simple, and every team works on four customers. And over time, as we started to bring in companies that were way more sophisticated, one large company ended up being the same amount of work as three small companies, for instance, which created a place where people were planned to work 120% or 130% of their actual time, which is created to started to set flags of, hey, like there's too much work. And so we um, had to do some studies. I did qualitative studies with each team and I got to see the, the pattern, which is the root cause is we have large customers that are way more work than small customers, but are being counted as a small customer. And so we went through a entire customer tiering, which a lot of software companies do, but it doesn't involve so much organiza like organizational change because of how the service or the product is delivered. And so we tiered out our customers into SMB mid-market commercial and enterprise like, a, like another company would do and split out the team so that the capacity was properly allocated. And when we look back, it'll be one of the most necessary business decisions. And when you get to a, a place in business, you're not going to get everything right. You're not going to be able to predict or see everything. The key is that when you see things that are not working, that you fix them and act on them in a way that's critical when we noticed it, we put things into place three days later to start to correct this issue and was fully resolved in three months. And I think it's like something that the team saw and really respected us for. You talk a lot about how culture is created by the actions that you take and the behaviors that you have. And I think a couple of things beyond the business implications there to create an environment where people feel safe to tell the CEO, the COO, their manager, VPs, I have too much work. This is unsustainable. I need help. That's something that actually I'm really proud of because a lot of companies don't create the psychological safety so that people feel comfortable actually expressing a sentiment like that. And then for you to have your deep dives with each person and for them to give you the truth and share what was difficult, <laughs> what they thought might needed to change, and then communicating and executing on that plan with the team. And so that I think is going to be a big driver for the future of our business because our people will tell us when things are going wrong so that we can do something about it. I always talk on LinkedIn about talking to customers. And there was something that I realized as the company grew so fast about three or four months ago is that my number one customer is the employees. And so I've translated this to talking to employees and customers. And I have six one-on-ones with employees every week. And I've been doing this for more than a month. And it's probably the, one of the most valuable activities that I do right now um, and would recommend for business leaders if you're not doing this for anyone, right? The marketing manager, the designer, the VP, it doesn't matter what their title is. We just rotate through and I talk to everyone. And just uh, has been so valuable. I'd recommend it to people. Definitely. Yeah. You can host office hours for people to sign up, but not everyone's going to feel comfortable doing it. So being proactive, I think has been huge for us. Let's shift gears a little bit to our customers. And so, I don't know, your first couple customers, I think, were hardware, hardware companies. Profitable hardware. You came from medical device, the medical device field. Now we're, you know, we're signing the, the hottest, fastest growing B2B SaaS and tech companies out there. People talk a lot about your ideal customer profile, staying really focused, you know, focusing on a niche. 
but we had a pretty rapid evolution from one distinct customer segment to another. Mm -hmm. And so talk about that journey. I don't, I don't think people realize how much of a strategist I am. (laughs) It's just the truth. And, and so when you're, and it's, I've done this at multiple companies and I've gone in and shown them like, Hey, here, I just went out to the market for 90 days. I have segmented it in these different ways. For these six or seven reasons, it's clear that these companies will not buy our product for this reason. They've told me it. And over here, these are the people that did. These are the people that want to buy it. And if we were going to sell it to them, we would actually change the messaging and we're going to change the product roadmap and we're going to focus on them. And companies won't do it. Mm-hmm. And so when I started, we didn't have an ICP. And at the beginning, most companies don't, so you got to figure it out. And so the thing that I was looking for is recurring revenue model hardware businesses. And then I started that had a sales team that wasn't like e-com or things like that, that had a sales team. And as I started to go through it more and the LinkedIn channel started to attract recurring revenue model software businesses that had a sales team, that were way more open to our way of looking at the world and way more excited about the things that we were doing and already invested a lot of money in digital while while hardware companies don't. And so that was a big shift of saying, are we gonna go over here and try and convince a market that doesn't wanna buy what we're selling and try and convince them to buy? Or are we going to go to a market that already believes in the things that we're talking about, invest money in there and wants it? And it was a clear choice to pivot to to that place. And very quickly over the first six months, a couple of our early software and SaaS customers had a lot of success, which created word of mouth, which then started getting larger companies. So our Series A, Series Bs had success, which then started to create word of mouth. We got a couple Series Cs and Series Ds. Over the next 12 months, we had proven out the model with those companies to a level of you know, 300 to 500% increases in pipeline over a 12 month period of time, which is ridiculous for a series C company, right? The baselines aren't zero, 300 to 500% increase isn't going from a hundred to 300. And so by like the baselines were large in the millions and then moving that up by 300 to 500% was, was very encouraging. And the things that we always talk about here, dark social, creating content that makes people aware of certain things, delivering a great product or service that drives real business results to create word of mouth in the market. Combine those two together where people are talking about you and customers that you work with are happy. Then then those customers that are happy have opportunities to tell other people that they're happy that you create this flywheel effect with when more and more companies are talking about you and are interested in, in working with you. One thing I want to add, because we have had multiple conversations over over time as our ICP has evolved of what are the characteristics, what are the things that we look for? And certainly there's, you know, black and white criteria, but what's most interesting, I think, and very unique to our business is I think our number one criteria for an ideal customer is that they are philosophically aligned with our methodology. And that's a very subjective criteria to have and something that we actually vet for in sales conversations. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if you have anything to add or to expand on that, but I think that's very unique. And I think that more and more what we've realized is if a company is not fully bought into the way that we see the world, that they're probably just not a good fit customer for us. Yeah. 
what we knew for sure going into it is that the way that we do things is very different than how people think that they should be doing it. It's very different of what they're hearing from Gartner and Forrester and vendors. And so going out cold and trying to talk to someone that has never heard about our methodology and try and convince them or educate them was never going to work, which is why we didn't go to an outbound type of model. And so the idea was that if we created content over time, we would educate people that were engaged and people would self-select and be like, hey, this stuff makes sense. I believe in it. I'm seeing it in my business. The, like, I'd like to work together to solve this, which created a place where buyers are 99% done buying before they come and try and work with us, which leads to selling $500,000 deals in less than 30 days. And that's just the way that we've gotten to because we do all of the legwork through marketing, not sales. And sales is focused on making sure that the customer is has the right mindset, has the right expectations, and is a good fit and going to be successful with us, not convincing someone that doesn't want to buy to buy. And so that was the initial strategy. And when we think about the alignment, every company has this. You just don't see it because you're not looking because you're looking at what zoom info from a graphics say, but psychographics of how people think are the number one driver to whether or not they're a fit for your product. I totally agree. Let's talk about our sales process because I think it's another very unique thing in our business. Um, you know, hundred percent of our customers come inbound to us as a result of our marketing. Um, and not inbound like HubSpot SEO inbound in 2011, just to be clear. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. And I mean, up until recently, you, me, um, our VP of growth, MJ Peters, have been taking all, all of our sales calls. We're on the cusp of basically building out a sales team now that we've reached this point in scale. And you and I have had many debates, actually, even in our first interview, I remember we covered this topic around sales commission and how you should be incentivizing sales reps. Given the unique nature of our customer acquisition model, our sales calls are not convince as many people to hire us as possible. It's find the best fit customers. And so talk a little bit about how you think about how we're going to build a sales team, how we're going to incentivize that sales team, how we're evolving our sales process, because I think it's another very different mm -hmm. way to think about it than almost every other company out there. This is not just the sales process. This is a go to market across the entire company. It's a company strategy. And so there's one component of it with sales, but doing this in sales in the absence of all the other things that we were doing would probably not lead to success. And I just want to point that out there. Mm -hmm. But because we do all of the work in marketing in a way that buyers want, in a way that's modern, in the way that aligns with how people want to buy, when people come in, they already know what we do. They already know what the price is. They already understand the way that we see the world. They already have decided that we're probably the top vendor or the only vendor that can help them. We're not usually talking to some manager. We're talking to the CMO. And so all of those things set up a situation where our job in, in sales and in a recurring revenue model business is to bring in customers that are going to be highly successful and have long lifetime values. The reason that we want them to be highly successful is is one, that's the point of having a business, is to have successful customers. Also, it drives word of mouth in the market, which is the most powerful thing that will drive your business long-term, is when happy customers go out and talk to other people about how happy they are by using your product or service. And so, and 
Another piece back in just pulling from my experience in other places is that commission structures create tons of problems in companies. There's a ton of overhead and just tracking them. You, in, you have to be careful because it incentivizes a lot of the wrong behaviors, right? You commission people on net new, then people bring on net new customers that churn, that are unhappy, that are all those type of typical things. It also creates tons of complexities in routing and territorization and all of these other type of things that people are fighting over, which I watched, like I watched our top sales reps at companies go to the next year and get their territory cut in half. And then they went to that territory that's cut in half and six months later they were gone. And you went from having a person that crushed their territory that was going over plan to someone that quit your company because you cut their territory in half. And so, and they didn't make as much money and the quota went higher and things like that. And so the key here is how do you incentivize salespeople to do things that are in the best interest of your customer, not you. And incentivizing people to sell deals regardless of any other outcome is not putting the customer first. And I also don't think that it puts the company first. And so you create a lot of different challenges and issues here. And so if you think about the one team type of mindset that everyone wants to talk about, we got sales and marketing are being one team or our entire revenue team is being one team. How about aligning the compensation structure for all those teams together? And I don't think that it's putting everyone on a variable commission plan in customer success and marketing. I think it's changing the sales commission plan to salary only. And if you did that, and the reason that this model works for us is because, because of how we do marketing and because of the inbound volume and the high win rates and the short sales cycles that it's not really sales anymore. <laughs> and so those are some of my thoughts to it. And then we back into would be interesting to go into goal planning and things like that as well, because I just think we do it differently than people. But we set our sales hiring plan based on how much demand we've created, not back calculating in a spreadsheet how much revenue we need and then assuming each sales rep ramps in a certain time and closes a certain amount of deals because the demand is what matters in 2021. Back in the day, let's say, let's go on-prem SaaS. <laughs> Or on-prem software, it's not even SaaS, on, <laughs> where back in the, in the 90s, the sales rep individually had way more control and accountability to actually closing the sale than they do today. It's yep. just completely clear. The internet didn't exist. There were a certain amount of accounts. There wasn't a lot of like data or buying stuff. So people had to go out and find accounts, convince them to buy it. They were typically could also be account managers very often and would run the whole business. Mm -hmm. And in that place, it would make sense to commission the rep in that way. And I think that that made sense in the old world. But now the sales rep actually has little to do with the entire outcome of it because buyers do most of the buying process on their own. There's information available everywhere that they're not consulting the rep for a lot of this information unless companies hide it like it's they're trying to fight it. Mm -hmm. So you got review sites, you got peers, you have communities, you have other websites, you have influential people, you have conferences, you have all these different things where buyers are getting information and then they go out and consult their peers, do a lot of independent buying is what's happening today. And you're going to make the sales rep accountable to all that different stuff that they have no control over. I think is the key change in the world of why commission plans are, I think are outdated or starting to drive the wrong behaviors in companies. Yeah, that's really well said. Since you brought it up, let's talk a little bit about goal setting. Cause I think that's something that I also experienced a lot in my career. Um, 
goals would be set in a spreadsheet based on an ideal revenue outcome that the CEO had um, without being grounded in reality at all. And the approach to get buy-in was, this is the goal that I'm holding you accountable to, not a conversation about whether that goal is realistic or attainable. So talk us through how, how we've approached that at Refine Labs. Yeah, let's talk through how people do it before. So the companies will raise money, which will then force them to hit a certain revenue target within a certain period of time to continue to raise money at a higher valuation before they run out of it. So it's do or die at that point. There's not like, oh, if we like, if we do the right things, we kind of get there, then there's not a lot of wiggle room for error. And the goals are big and typically unre- like oftentimes unrealistic. And then they take that number and they do the only thing that they know how to do, which is a back calculated sales headcount model. Like it's in the early 2000s in order to get there, which is the average rep is gonna do $350,000 in revenue. And then we need to get blah, 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 I'm out of net new, less the expected churn. So we need to have 84 sales reps. That's what we need. Let's go out and figure out how to hire these people. We'll say that they're gonna ramp in two months when they're actually gonna ramp in nine months. We're gonna put all of these best case conversion rates together. The spreadsheet looks great. We give it to the investors, we get sign off. And on day one, the shit's breaking down. (laughs) And it's breaking down from day one, which puts pressure on all of the employees because they know that it's do or die type of deal. They know that if you don't get there. So the pressure is starting to mount and you're playing from behind and every day you're falling further and further behind because the plan was unrealistic creates bad culture, creates bad behaviors, creates you doing things that are in the best interest for you, not your customer. And it creates the foundation of a bad business. In my view, that leads to high customer acquisition costs, low quota attainment, high sales rep attrition, you know, poor customer experience. And there's a lot of negative side effects there. Definitely. And so when you think about the, the way that we think about it, we set goals. We set goals that we have a high probability to exceed. So for instance, this year, our goal was to do at end the year at 5 million ARR. We're gonna end the year probably around 14, 14, 15 million ARR. So we're gonna blow the target out of the water. What does that do to team morale? When people see that we exceeded our plan by 300% instead of if we set the target at 18 and then missed it by 15% creates a whole different environment for people where people feel like they're winning every day, where when we close business, everyone's pumped. Not like, oh, we close business, but we're still so far behind. And so we set realistic targets that are achievable. And because of the way that we set up the company and the way that we structured the funding, if we don't get there, then that's fine. The company still operates profitably. Nobody's losing their job. Nobody's going out of business. And it just creates a whole different environment for how to grow and scale. One thing I want to add, because the way that you explained it, the original goal that we set was great. Like if we had hit the original goal, we would have been happy with that. So it's not like we're artificially setting goals lower. Like we didn't know. We didn't know. And at the time when we set that $5 million goal, we were like, wow, this would be really cool if we hit that number. (laughs) Yeah. And things moved and evolved and changed really quickly. This actually is a good segue into one of the things I wanted to cover next, which was key when we think about goals. The key is to do the right activities and to do the right behaviors and then really let the chips fall. We focus on like part of the strategy, create the best information for demand marketers to think about strategy in the world. 
put that stuff on the internet as frequently as possible. Innovate frequently so that when we come up with new things like self-reported attribution or split the funnel or a lot of our other proprietary processes, that we share those with people so that they can implement them themselves and be more successful because of the scaled innovation that we have working on 50 companies at once. Do the best that we can for our customers every day and focus on driving real business outcomes like qualified pipeline generation and revenue growth that matters the most. And those are the things that you can control on a day-to-day basis. By focusing on doing the right things, I think is the right thing as opposed to focusing on hitting metrics. Yeah, I'm very aligned to that. Something that has changed a lot in 2021 for us has been our offering. We started the year with an idea that we could offer creative services, and now we have the best, arguably the best B2B creative team out there. It's not close. (laughs) Not, Not even close. We started the year bringing on customers at $12,000 a month. I think one of the last deals we closed last week, they're paying us $46,000 a month. Talk a little bit about the evolution of our offering, not only adding creative services, but how pricing and packaging evolved pretty rapidly over the course of this year. I think this is something that a lot of entrepreneurs, small business owners would get a lot of value at because what we're selling now is completely different from what we were selling in January. Yeah, there's so many things that go into this. So the first thing that's been changing over the past 12 months is that our target customer has been changing to a company that's far more mature from a company that's generating, you know, 300K a month in pipeline to a company that wants to generate somewhere between three and $30 million in pipeline a month. So the stakes are higher, the investments are higher, the results to the impact on business value are way higher when you think about generating millions of dollars of revenue at 15, 20x revenue multiples. Like we're not fucking around anymore when it comes, this is real money. And so the type of company that works with us was different. The second piece of it is that we initially had been focused on the media, buying the ads, helping customers create content, things like that. And what we discovered when you start to run this at scale, which is part of what we're doing here is looking at what are the trends that we see when we do this across 50 companies at the same time. And the trend that was super apparent was that the creative matters a ton to whether or not it's successful. How is the message packaged? What are the words? Are people consuming it? Is it a video or a picture or a carousel? Like what is the actual goal? All of those components it would be, and it's the people will really understand this. It'd be like going to buy a Super Bowl media spot for $7 million and then spending $5,000 on the video. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what every B2B company across the board does right now. They only care about buying the ads because they think about things like it's Google in 2011. And we're in social. It's different. We're not just writing blue letters for Google ads anymore. You got to have pictures and videos and native content that actually drive a message. The creative is so much more valuable in these places. And it's the difference about whether or not you get the results that you want. And so in order to deliver the results that our customers need in order to continue to grow, we had to put this into place. And when you think about our strategy of creating demand, of focusing on native content consumption, not lead gen, it creates an entirely different way to think about creative, which is non-direct response, which is message and impact first, 
And we've been able to, over the next nine months, combine some of the brightest minds from B2C design and motion and copywriting and B2B copywriting and design and all the different backgrounds to put together a creative and content department that is unmatched in B2B. It truly is like, go, you can go to the website and look at the work. It is the best work that I'm sure anyone's ever seen when it comes to B2B. And it's because of the, it's rooted in the strategy and the people, but the strategy really matters because you wouldn't think to do creative like we do unless you had our strategy. And so our customers have been changing. We added on creative and have continued to do that because when you put media and creative together, another big thing is that when those two things are together, we can really be accountable to the outcome. The next big thing when it comes to, you know, getting from $12,000 a month to $46,000 a month is that our customers stay with us because their qualified pipeline keeps growing every quarter. And when you look at the value of what is the value of this pipeline going up for eight quarters in a row at more than 25% growth per quarter consistently to not have to worry about whether or not you're going to hit your pipeline target because demand gen's got it on lock. What's the value of that? $46,000 still underpriced. And so that's the, the driver is based on the business value created and for companies to consider what is the risk or what is the cost of not spending this $46,000. And then instead of that, taking it and going to give it to a $12,000 a month agency that's going to spend our $600,000 a month and waste it. And so people don't look at digital as a total digital investment. They only look at what the agency fee is. And so they're like nickeling and diming on the agency fee. Oh, I don't want to pay 22. I want to pay $19,000 a month, but I don't give a fuck what happens with the $600,000 in media that we're spending. And so people just generally need to think differently about the effectiveness of the overall program. So total program cost, creative people, media, against the total program outcomes, not individually siloing how the money gets spent. I think that's a huge unlock that I've never talked about before. Yeah, I agree. Not to challenge it, but to shed light, I think we did run into some issues when, you know, we've gone through multiple rounds of price increases over the history of the company, but most recently with For the sure. latest price increase, we did start to run into some issues, right? Because up until recently, we were packaging all of our services up into one price. We're not billing yeah. by the hour, we're driving results. Once we got above the 30, 35K a month though, we definitely started to get some feedback from our customers and prospects who were scrutinizing the line items. And I think this was another breakthrough that you had this year yeah. around how we priced and packaged everything up to communicate it effectively. Talk about it. It's because we are, we're a demand generation consulting firm a media agency and a creative agency together and potentially an analyst firm, all of those wrapped into one and companies were comparing our price against a commodity media agency. So they're like refine labs is 35,000. We got some other company over here that charges 10% of ad spend. So it'd be eight K a month. It's not the customer's fault. We didn't effectively communicate the differences, which required us to start to rethink how we package and how we, we message the overall offering, which has been a major unlock to actually split out the demand generation consulting, which you're never going to get when a commodity media agency.
So is it value? Is that line item valuable to you? If so, you can work with us. If it's not, go find somebody else. It's helping customers make a clear choice too. The next one is on the media. If you want to put our stack our media against some commodity, you'll probably have the same price. And then the creative side, like it's nest people are like, Hey, can you actually take the creative out? We don't want to spend 12 K a month on creative. It's like, you need it in order to win on social. And so trying to help people rethink about the idea that if you spend a hundred thousand dollars in ads, you should be investing probably at least 20% of that in the creative production to fuel the ads. And so I'm just trying to help people over time. It's something that people really need to think about is that you need to invest in the creative to win in all of these modern platforms, just like you would be expected to if you ran television commercials. All right. You've mentioned this a couple of times. Let's talk a little bit about funding the company. And so I know that I mentioned this earlier, but when you and I got together, I was like, okay, if we're going to build this company, I don't want to answer to investors. I don't want to take funding. I don't want to be beholden to them. I don't want to be pressured to do things that I don't want to do. I'm done doing other people's dirty work. And we had committed initially that our, our original intent was we were going to build the company bootstrapped profitably without funding. As we were growing the company though, and we were scaling so quickly, we had a lot of challenging moments. I was chasing after people to pay bills. So we had enough cash in the bank and make sure we had enough working capital. Yeah. Probably every two to three months, you'd be like, should we consider investment? And we would debate it and we would ultimately decide, okay, no, we'll figure it out. And then we discovered this really interesting alternate funding options called Pipe. And that really has been a great option for us to give us some space. I had tried to apply for a, a line of credit from Bank of America and had to jump through a million hoops and they didn't even want to give it to us because we were just so young. The company was young, not we, yeah. <laughs> so talk a little bit about how you think about the bootstrapping, being profitable, funding options, kind yeah. of that journey that we had. <laughs> Just to clarify for people, while Megan was going out and, and collecting our bills, it wasn't like we weren't going to make payroll. If, <laughs> <laughs> like it wasn't, she made it sound pretty dramatic. We were doing fine, but yes, we wanted companies to pay the bills on the time. I started the company on my own with $30,000 in the bank and more of that in student debt. And so from a net worth standpoint, I was negative when I started the company. And it's an interesting learning for me. And I think it's an interesting learning. It could be a learning for a lot of people because when you don't have money, it forces you to create a strategy and a business that actually works. And so if we had raised $5 million, we probably wouldn't have discovered how to do LinkedIn because we wouldn't have gotten forced into it. We probably wouldn't have moved to a podcast because we wouldn't have gotten forced into it. And so a lot of the behaviors that have happened and the things that have been the most important, impactful things to growing the company were created because of a lack of resources. And so I think that it's interesting. Lack of resources can drive a lot of innovation that I, that a lot of companies just don't get forced into because they don't have a lack of resources. So, so that was a big one. The next one is that it's, it forces you to build a business that can sustain itself. And so when, when we were growing, a super interesting thing in our business is if we don't get any customers next month, everything's going to be fine. The company still makes money. The company still has happy customers. The company still has happy employees. We just slow down our hiring plan a little bit. For other companies, it doesn't make money next month. It doesn't make money the next month. Things start to get a lot of pressure. 
because they lose money every month. And so those two dynamics of create a business that can sustain itself, that's profitable, plus create a space where you can innovate a lot, I think is why our company has been so successful. And I credit a lot to not having a lot of things. Having full control over how you want to run the company is ultra important to me because of how unique I think that the strategies and things that we do are that I don't think a lot of outside investors would support. And so we have chosen not to do that. We did debate it a lot of different times and always ended up on a no because it probably wasn't the right thing for us to do. We applied for a line of credit, Bank of America and all of these traditional banks are so stuck in how the world is evolving that it just doesn't make sense. Like, so we didn't, weren't able to get a line of credit for them because we weren't in business technically for more than two years, despite having like five or $8 million in recurring revenue somewhere in that range. Then we found this company called Pipe, which is a company that I've had a ton of positive experience with so far. And I think a lot of people should consider it as an alternative, non-dilutive way to get capital in order to grow your business, which plugs into our Stripe instance and looks at all of our recurring revenue model contracts and then loans us up to 20% of ARR for a 7% interest rate, which is incredible and, and I think a really special thing. So we were able to go out and acquire $2 million from them, which allowed us to create a lot of working capital to invest in more programs, invest in people and benefits, build out more teams and continue to grow. And so waiting for that to become available, which is a very progressive way to think about funding is another thing. When we, when I think about growing the company, I want to change how people do I want to think about how B2B marketers think about, execute, and measure marketing and change that broadly. So in five or 10 years, companies aren't executing with MQLs and AQLs and MQAs and all the stuff created by analyst firms and tech vendors. They're using our framework, our methodology, getting our level of results. But the second piece of it is I want to model how you could grow a company in the future, what a modern company actually looks like. How do they think about remote distributed work when people are all distributed, how do you think about getting people together? At what frequency? What do you do? How does that work? How do they think about funding? Do you raise a bunch of money? Do you bootstrap? Like we've gone through a period of time for up to 20 years where the raise a lot of money, VC model, growth at all costs, hire a bunch of people, try and sell your business. That's been a thing going on. It's not gonna stop, but we've been 20 years in this. Not a lot's changing. And it's like, maybe there's a different way. And what are the things that you would need to do differently to create a different situation? And so just how we go to market, how we think about marketing, how we think about sales, how we think about customer success, how we think about finance, how we think about people is all different than how companies think about it today. And I think that will eventually be a model of people, of where people can look back and be like, that's how I wanna grow my company in the future. Yeah, I wanna prove to the world you can build a, profitable, successful company, put your team first, your customers first, and not be an asshole. <laughs> All right, a couple of closing thoughts or closing questions that I wanted to think about looking, looking back and looking ahead. Looking back, what do you think was your hardest moment in scaling the company so far? What comes to mind when you think about I know most things come easy to Chris Walker. It's, it's not even it's it's not even that. It's just it's hard moments are part of the game. 
Of course. And so like, if you're not ready for things to be hard, then don't be an executive, you know? Yeah. But just to but share, I, to open yeah, up a little course. bit. Yeah, of course. I'm thinking, I'm just like, I really like, we've had a good run. Like there hasn't been a lot of like super hard stuff. Yeah. I mean, what, what do you, like, what do you got? Like, I just, I'm, I'm really like at a loss of things that have been like super hard. Like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think the story that you were telling earlier about when the team surfaced feedback of being really, you know, overworked, I think that was a, it was a, really intense period in the business because we were growing so fast. We were hiring very quickly. We were trying to maintain the level of quality for everything. And that change that we had to implement, and we're still kind of finishing that up right now, continuing to support the growth of the company and make all of those changes at the same time was a really big organizational challenge. I think we did a really good job, but that was challenging. Um, I mean, when the pandemic started, it was really interesting. Oh yeah. It was just like, I got back to Boston the day that, that the country shut down because I was on vacation. And you get there and you're like, are all of our customers gonna churn? Am I gonna have to lay off the five employees that we have? Are we gonna, is this all over? And that was scary for a couple of days. And then I- um, Couple of days. <laughs> scary for a couple, it really was. I think a lot of people would resonate with that. Like it wasn't scary forever for a couple of days and I sat down and wrote the next 12 months can change my life. And then I went out and started executing on that. We started the podcast, we continued the LinkedIn content, we continued to do the right things. And 12 months later, it was truly like a different world for me. And so there was some challenges, but honestly, like, I feel like the key is that we haven't put ourselves in a position for something to be really bad. And I think that a lot of companies set themselves up with risks or other things that put them in situations where things can go really wrong. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. What are you most excited about for the future? So the thing that I am most excited about is we're entering like the next phase of Refine Labs where the strategy is formalizing, where We have data across 45 SaaS companies that are all pretty similar, that are all in the same stages, data sets that nobody else has, that we're starting to put together a research product that's gonna help people look at data and make decisions on how to drive strategy with way more confidence than what they're doing right now, which is asking people in Revenue Collective, looking at serious decisions, data, things like that, that are not as specific, not as helpful, not real world data, It's it's not Salesforce data, it's survey data. And so there's the the thing that I'm interested in is as we continue to scale out and solve more and more problems for our specific target market, which is B2B SaaS companies that have a that are high growth that are primarily target North America. And as we continue to build out more products and services to help those companies, what opportunities does that create for the people that work here? And so I've always been really interested. I feel like that in a lot, in most companies, people only have a linear career path that you're in there. Maybe if you're start as an SDR, it's not exactly linear, but most people you go in as a marketing manager, the only path to grow in that company is go marketing manager, marketing director, VP of marketing, blah, blah, blah. And I think that it, with a company that has a blend of service and research and SaaS and other products in the future, that 
employees will have the opportunity to flex in a lot of different ways that don't exist right now, which create a breadth of experience that will create and breed a different mindset of executive in the future. I think that the the breadth of experience inside of companies for at the executive level, I think that's the thing that will become most important in the future is a CMO understanding finance, understanding product, understanding engineering, not doing the work, but understanding it enough to be a true executive and business leader. And I don't think that a lot of people in companies get exposed to those things because of how the company is siloed. And so I'm looking forward to creating a in a work environment where people can learn a ton of things that they might not be able to learn anywhere else and capitalize on career opportunities that probably wouldn't exist in other places. I love that. As a final point, I think one of the things that I really hope for is that with our continued success that people internalize that there's a different way to build companies and that more and more people shed the old way, embrace the new way, come up with even new and different ways that we haven't even tried. If you had to summarize like the top lessons learned or the, the, the most important elements that have brought us to this place, what comes to mind? The only things that matter in a company are your people, number one, the employees of the company, the talent, how they feel every day, how long they stay, what they say to other people, how people feel in your company is the most important thing. And it was something that I didn't respect as much as, as we've grown over the past year to something that's very clear that it's the most important thing. It's why I've been allocating my time so much more to it as the companies continue to scale. So that's number one. And then all that matters in a business is can you acquire customers and can you keep customers happy? Or deliver the outcomes. Deliver, yeah, deliver the outcomes that customers want, aka keep customers happy. In a recurring revenue model business, that's all that matters. And so when we think about those different dynamics, those are some of the learnings for me. But the main one for people and the main one that I think is the biggest opportunity for people is really internalizing that the way people feel in your company determines the success. The one thing that I would add is think for yourself. Just because someone did something and it was successful doesn't mean it's the only way to achieve that goal. I think one of the things that we look at data, we think critically about things, but I think a lot of the decisions we've made over time also come from intuition and what you believe is right, regardless of what other people are doing or other people are saying. And so I think having the confidence to follow your instinct and try something new, um, even if it's very different from how everyone else is doing things, I think that's when great things happen. That's yeah. when new things are created. It's been weird though, I've because I've used to use the term intuition as well, but I feel like it's not. I don't feel like it's intuition. I feel like it's just using data in a different way to make decisions. The reason that we make decisions is because of data and experiences. Those experiences were just experiences as employees at other companies that didn't do some of the right things. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I try to help people on this one because intuition is something that feels fluffy and hard to harness or replicate. And I think it's really about just trusting your experience to make decisions. I think that a lot of people are scared what other people think and are mm -hmm. looking for and potentially insecure in their own strategy decisions. And so therefore look for validation from other people that they think are smarter 
or better. And so having a, having a real confidence and belief in yourself is a big one. Definitely. We covered a lot. Anything that, uh, we didn't cover that you want to get in for a closing thought before we wrap mm -hmm. today. I'm just excited to continue to watch these things play out over time because as the company continues to grow and continues to evolve, I think there'll be a lot of learnings that we can share with people. I think there'll be a lot of a lot of successes that people can point to saying this is a different way. And so I think that there's what well, we've done a lot so far, and I think there's a ton more that there is to do, and I'm looking forward to doing it. Me too. Cool. That's Thanks. Hey, everyone. Thanks for checking out this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. You know, it's crazy to think that now more than 15,000 demand marketers, sales reps, product marketers, field marketers, CMOs, and everything in between are listening to this podcast and getting a ton of value out of it. And so if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been getting value out of it, I would really, really, really appreciate if you could leave a rating in the podcast section. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you and see you for the next episode. Thank you.